So it is good to be together uh, to celebrate in this way. As you can imagine, we're going to take a break today from uh, the break that we've been taking. Uh, <laughs> we're studying the book of 1 Timothy and Titus and 2 Timothy, but uh, we finished 1 Timothy, we took a break, we've been looking at some of the Psalms, uh, which we'll do again next week, and then we'll jump into the book of Titus. Uh, but today we're going to take a break from our break and we're going to uh, consider Christmas uh, together. It seemed like it would fit uh, in a sermon that we're calling Why, or at least I'm calling it, we're calling it Why Christmas, uh, based on a portion of the Christmas account in the book of Luke. Uh, but I do certainly wish you all a, a Merry Christmas, and, and I think it's important for us uh, to take some time to, to consider uh, this once a year, remind ourselves afresh uh, of some of the things that uh, are so dear to our faith that maybe we kind of skim through and we forget a little bit from time to time. So let's pray together. Father, help us to enter in, Lord, to uh, things that are familiar to us, but at the same time things that uh, have changed our eternity, or at least have the potential to. And so, Lord, would you come and would you minister your truth to our hearts this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to lay in a little secret. From time to time, I get a little bored at work. I work right over here in the, uh, at my desk. And, you know, you can read so much, and, you know, you can do the things you're doing on the computer so much. So from time to time, I, I like a, a little break. Sometimes I get up, and I walk around. I go to the bathroom. I don't have to go. It's just something to do, you know what I mean? Or sometimes I'll, I'll vacuum or something like that just to kind of change up the pace a little bit. Well, this week, uh, and Thursdays, by the way, I don't do any of that. I don't talk to people. I put my head down, no chit-chat, because i got to get this done today if I'm going to have some time off uh, before the weekend. And so I feel bad for the people I work with. I don't think Will cares. I'm not sure Kyle cares. I believe Jim cares. <laughs> I think Jim wants to chit-chat a little. Um, but no, no chit-chat on Thursday. i got work to do. But on Mondays, I'm ready to talk to anyone. Uh, and ask all sorts of questions. And so this particular last Monday, the one that just finished, actually it was like two weeks ago, uh, I got a little bored. And so I, for whatever reason, decided to pose the question to the gentleman in, in the staff there and, and Charlotte as well of what their favorite Christmas movie was. And I said, so Jim, what's your favorite Christmas movie? And so on. And Will played along, rolled his eyes, of course, as you can imagine, but played along with me. And this is, this is my study of the office staff of our favorite Christmas songs. Kyle and Charlotte, their favorite Christmas movie, I should say, is the movie Elf. Yes. I thought that revealed a bit of maturity level, but I don't know. You do whatever you want. Will, his favorite is A Charlie Brown Christmas. What's the matter with you people? I think Jim was trying to give the answer he thought I wanted to hear. It's a wonderful life for Jim. Yes, all the old people love it, yes. And mine, I guess I'm in the middle of old and, and goofy. Uh, it's a wonderful life and National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Those are mine. Well, I can see some of you agree with their choices. Some of you, I'm sure, just, I thought these people were spiritual. You're shaking your heads there wondering. And so we, what's the matter? Well, settle down. Uh, <laughs> I figured we should, you know, that's just five people in an office here. What does the science say about 
Christmas movies? Well, I did a lot of research. I dug in Entertainment Weekly. <laughs> Entertainment Weekly. This is their November 23rd edition. Now, why they have the authority to decide, I don't know. But this is from their edition. These are the all-time top five Christmas movies. Number five, according to Entertainment Weekly, as published on November 23rd, 2023. Number five is How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Number four is Elf. Number three, Will Got It, A Charlie Brown Christmas. Number two, not a favorite of my wife, my wife A Christmas Story. You'll shoot your eye out, that one there. But the number one all-time best Christmas movie, according to Entertainment Weekly, is It's a Wonderful Life. Yes. Now, I dug deeper. I dug deeper, because that's a nice list. But I asked myself, is it an accurate list? Or like Jim, are people just saying what they think people want to hear so they sound smarter? And so since it's so crucial that we know what the top Christmas movies are, I dug deeper. And I went to Forbes magazine, a much more scientific study, because what Forbes did was Forbes went to Netflix and to Amazon and to Paramount and to all of these streaming sites that are out there, and they just asked for the data. Give us the research. What does the research say are the top Christmas movies of the 2023 holiday season? And this is what Forbes magazine says. So this is what they actually are. This is what people are watching scattered around America right now. The five most watched Christmas movie this year is Four Christmases. Have you heard of that one? Apparently not. <laughs> okay. It's about a couple and their parents are divorced and they have to hit all four parents. Yeah, it's, it's very nice. Uh, number four is The Santa Claus. Number three is Home Alone. Number two, most streamed this year, is National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. And I don't know what this says about our country, but the most streamed Christmas movie of 2023 is Elf. Yes. Polar Express, It's a Wonderful Life, A Christmas Story, Honorable mentions. Even Die Hard was an honorable mention, but I have my doubts as to whether that's a Christmas movie. Now, I've seen most of those movies. I really like Christmas movies. I like Christmas. I like Christmas music. I have it on my radio and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I've seen most of those movies. And what I've discovered, because I read my Bible from time to time, you, you begin to doubt it, uh, I'm, I'm thinking. What I've discovered as is somewhat common with movies that are based on a book is the movies aren't quite as accurate as the original, uh, as you might imagine. And I suspect a lot of us here, you're a little bit familiar with the Christmas account as the Bible reveals it. Uh, a lot of us here could probably throw out the main details, not throw out, but like put them out there. Uh, Mary and Joseph, main details, the baby Jesus, the angels, Bethlehem, the shepherds, the idea that there was no room in the inn, the stable, the mangers, the wise men coming to visit. A lot of us are familiar with some of the details of it. We'll call that the, the what of the Bible's Christmases accounts. And you can find a lot of those what's in Matthew chapter 1 and 2 and in Luke chapter 2. But what's, what I've been thinking about, a bit about this year, as you know, the season is doing what it's doing in, your, in our hearts, what I've been thinking about is not so much the what of Christmas, those things, but really the why of Christmas. 
And so, like, why Mary and Joseph and the circumstance they found themselves in? Why a baby? Why Bethlehem? Why the stable and the mangers and the fact that there was no room in the inn and that wise men came and so on? And so, not the what of Christmas, but the why of Christmas. And again, as I was curious about these things, I began to wonder about our nation and the world, really, and what the world thinks about these things. So I Googled because that's where we do our research these days. I Googled this question, why do we celebrate Christmas? Because I was curious, honestly, why our society celebrates it. And, and the, I know the whole America is not Christian, and yet a lot of people in America, oh, it feels like the whole America is celebrating Christmas. And so I came across Reader's Digest. Do we have any old people here? You probably get it delivered to your house. Yeah, I'm sure you do. Uh, you've heard of it. Reader's Digest, Digest, this is what it said. I'm going to read a little bit for you. It says, Midwinter celebrations, usually surrounding the winter solstice, were a staple of many different cultures. After Jesus died, early celebrations focused mainly on his crucifixion and resurrection. However, about three centuries later, 300, when the Christian church had become much larger and more influential, religious and political leaders wanted a way to make the Christian holidays more popular while still allowing for traditional celebrations people enjoyed. As a result, over time, it became celebrated in a wide variety of ways as different cultures adapted the holiday to their specific needs. You with me? I'm reading fast, but you're with me. It's not that important. Just kind of catch a few words. Continuing, the early Christmas celebrations combined a mix of pagan and Christian traditions, resulting in activities that might seem more appropriate for Halloween these days. Bonfires, trading treats for tricks, Mardi Gras-like activities in the streets, and so on. And sadly, the holiday became so known for debauchery, that's sin, basically, that the pilgrims in America strongly discouraged even celebrating Christmas in what we call the Americas, and outlawed it altogether in some cities. Can you believe it? However, that was 1600s, Christmas began to regain popularity in the mid-1800s, and it was led primarily by two very popular Christmas books, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol and another book by Washington Irving, uh, if you know who that is. Now, the, both of those books were fictitious, but both books portrayed Christmas in a warm, family-friendly way leading to a resurgence of celebrations of the holiday in Europe and the Americas. In 1870, Ulysses S. Grant declared Christmas to be a national holiday. And in the 153 years since, Americans have created their own unique celebration of Christmas by taking pieces from other cultural traditions and inventing some new ones. Continuing. <laughs> I'm sure you're thinking, please stop. Uh, continuing, this is interesting to me. This is what Reader's Digest said. Why do people celebrate Christmas? There is still a religious component to Christmas. Well, that's good, you know. And many people attend some type of church service, either the night before or the day of. But most Christmas celebrations in America today focus on secular, non-religious activities. While 90% of Americans say they will celebrate Christmas, fewer than half say they do so for religious reasons, according to a survey done by the Pew Research Center. So there's more to the article. You can read the Reader's Digest article. I'm sure, again, some of the older folks have a copy cataloged at their home. They can get it for you. Does something seem a bit off about the ending of that article to you? Again, I'll read it to you. It says, 90% of Americans say they will celebrate Christmas. 
fewer than half say they celebrate for religious reasons. Something about that seems a little off to me. Perhaps Google is not the place for me to search for why we celebrate Christmas. Maybe the better place for us is to go back to the original source, which is the Word of God. The why of Christmas can be traced back to a couple of the what's that I mentioned earlier of Christmas, and that is the angels and the shepherds of Luke's account of the nativity. As you may be familiar, and if you want, you can turn there. I think we're going to throw it up on the screen as well. But as you may be familiar, according to Luke's account of the life of Jesus, on the night that Jesus was born, there were shepherds out in the field that were keeping watch over their flocks by night. The verse says, and in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field. I can't help but hear Linus's voice. Uh, keeping watch over their flock by night. And as they watched their flocks, Luke goes on to tell us that an angel of the Lord appeared to them and that the glory of the Lord shone around them and that they were filled with great fear. So you can picture the scene there. And this is what the angel then said. He said, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. It's because of that good news that the angel declared will cause great joy. It's because of that that we celebrate Christmas. Good news is meant to be celebrated. And good news that causes great joy all over the world is meant to be celebrated over the entire world. And so this angel then begins, he, the, the shepherds are terrified. And it begins by telling the shepherds, look, I bring you good news. And then he says what it is, verse 11. He says, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So the good news that's going to cause great joy for all the people of the earth is that a Savior has been born. And the angel goes on to explain where the Savior could be found and how the shepherds, when they did go to that place, would be able to identify. It says in verse 12, this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and laying in a manger. Now, before I move on, notice first an important point here, which is how the angel expects the shepherds to respond to this message of good news. He comes, they're freaked out. He says, you know, be at peace, you know, don't fear. Shares with them good news. But notice how the angel expects them to respond. He says, and this will be a sign for you. The point being there that the angel expects that they will go and look for the Savior. The angel expects that the shepherds are going to respond to the news that he is sharing with them. And so this isn't just a nice tidbit of information. Hey, you'll love it. You know, at parties, you'll be able to share this little bit of gossip. A Savior was born today. It's not just a little tidbit of information that they can hold on to. He expects that they will respond to it. This news that he's sharing with them, he knows, this angel knows, is going to change the world. And he expects that they're going to respond to that news and go and search out this newborn babe. That expectation, it continues to today though this was 2,000 years ago, 
the expectation continues today. It's expected that the message of Christmas will elicit a response from us as its listeners. And so when we hear that message, or when that message is delivered to us, that we will respond to it in some way. And so you should be asking yourself this question, okay, am I prepared to respond to this message that is being delivered? Not because it's from me, but because it's coming from the word of God. Now the angel already told the shepherds which city or village that this savior was born. That's the first thing he said in verse 10. Notice there after verse 10, I should say in verse 11, he says, for unto you is born this day in the city of David. Now in all of the Bible, there's only one David. Literally, there's only one David in all of the Bible. I'm not just saying there's nobody like him. He's the only one that is found in the scriptures. Now that David is mentioned over a thousand times in both when you combine both the Old and the New Testaments, but he's the only guy in the Bible with the name of David. And so if someone mentioned to a Jew, David, whether that's another human being or an angel from heaven, if they mentioned David, the listener would know immediately which David they were speaking of. David, the former and the greatest of all of the kings of the Jewish people. They would have also known the city of David, which is referenced in our passage here, that the city of David is actually what we call the town Bethlehem, or what they called the town Bethlehem. Really, it was a village more so than a city. And so the first thing that these shepherds know, come to know, is that that night a baby was born and that he was born in the city of David. Well, that's helpful information, no doubt. It narrows their search down a little bit. But in even a smaller village like Bethlehem, I'm sure there's going to be numerous houses. The baby could be in any one of them. And there's probably going to be numerous babies that are in that village there, that town. And so helpfully, notice what the angel does, narrows the search down even more. It says in verse 12, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Now, a manger is a feeding trough. It's not some type of crib or anything like that. It's, it's a bowl or a bucket of sorts that the animals would have eaten out of. It was probably made out of wood, and they would throw the slop in there, and the, angel, or the uh, animals would eat out of it there. And so here, this baby is going to be laid in that. I'm sure they cleaned it out a little and put some hay on top of it, and that's where this baby could be found. And so then, for these shepherds, we know what town to go to. We're going to go to the town there of Bethlehem. And essentially, they're going to be looking for a barn or a stable of some sorts. I was in my head kind of working my way around Ewing Township and realized there's very few barns that are left in Ewing Township. This used to be, there used to be some farming uh, places around here. And I, I could probably narrow it down to two or three, depend, do we count big garages or not? But there's probably two or three barns in all of Ewing Township. Well, similarly, they narrowed the search down to where the shepherds could find this little baby. It's going to be in a barn or a stable of some sorts. And then when you get in there and you see the feeding trough has been cleaned down and there's a baby in it, that's, your, you're going to know, that's the one. And so the angels there, they give some clues as to where this baby's going to be found. Now, all of this is still the what. What I'm really interested, though, is in the why. Why the city of David? 
Why a Savior? Why this phrase, Christ the Lord? And all of those questions, I'm not just making them up out of nowhere, they come right from verse 11, for unto you is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Let's start with the first of them. Why the city of David? Well, we've already learned that the city of David is the village of Bethlehem. All right, but why Bethlehem there? Was Bethlehem just selected randomly? We'll just pick sort of Bethlehem as the town? Or was it selected by the design of God to accomplish the purposes of God? As you can imagine, I'm going to suggest the latter. Bethlehem was not some randomly selected village in which the Savior would be born. In fact, 700 years earlier, the prophet Micah predicted that it would be in that city in which the Savior would be born. This is what the prophet Micah said. And this is about the year 725 B.C., so about 700 years earlier. He says, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, there's another Bethlehem in northern Israel, uh, so that this is to distinguish it. O you, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from the ancient of days. Now for hundreds of years, the Jews were fully aware that there would come a day that one, as the word says, one who was to be ruler in Israel, that he would come, and that he would come from this little town of Bethlehem. We have an example of this in Matthew's account of the coming of Christ. Matthew writes about the time when the wise men came to Jerusalem. And we get it off sometimes. We think Jesus was like still a baby. The wise men, it took him a year and a half, two years to get there. Uh, and so Jesus wasn't a little baby, a little boy, actually, at that time. But nonetheless, when the wise men come to Jerusalem and they're searching for, this is, these are their words, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? What you'll notice from that particular passage is that the response to that inquiry that came, it ultimately came through Herod, but that the response to that inquiry was a quick answer of the religious leaders. Matthew chapter 2, verse 5, it says, they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. Now, it's not in the text, but based on the swiftness of their answer, I always imagined that they added to that, how about giving us a hard one next time? Because that was an easy answer for them. They knew immediately, oh, the Messiah? Bethlehem. Give us another question here. And so they come right back and they said, in Bethlehem of Judea. And then in the Matthew passage, they go on to quote that Micah passage that I mentioned earlier to you. That the ruler of Israel, whose coming forth was from of old. What that means is, whose coming forth was from before time itself. The ancient of days, the eternally existent one, is what they're getting at there. The prophet predicted he would be born in Bethlehem. And so the Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem because the prophet said Bethlehem. But why did the prophet say Bethlehem? Like the prophet couldn't he have said Jerusalem? Couldn't he have said Galilee? Couldn't he have said somewhere else? I suppose he could have. But Bethlehem was by design. And that's why the prophet said that that's where he would be born. The answer to the question of why Bethlehem is because it's connected to the next phrase, and it's connected to the title of the, the city of Bethlehem, the town of Bethlehem. So it was called Bethlehem, but it had sort of like this 
title. Like Detroit is what? The Motor City or something like that? I'm not sure why I thought of Detroit. But like, you know, the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. It's got a little title. Well, the title for Bethlehem was the city of David. The Savior would be born in the city of David because he would be significantly tied to, connected to David. This ruler of Israel, whose coming forth was from of old, would be tied to the city where the greatest of the rulers of Israel had come from, and that's Bethlehem. Bethlehem was David's ancestral home. That's where he grew up as a little boy. Nobody knew who he was. Nobody cared who he was. He came from Bethlehem. It's the place where he was first anointed to be Israel's king. We read that passage in 1 Samuel chapter 16. If you're familiar with the life of David, you know that he wasn't Israel's first king, but he was Israel's greatest kings. And that's primarily, or it's connected with at least, the promise that was spoken over his life by a prophet, the prophet Nathan. And the prophet Nathan revealed to David what we have come to know is God of as God's Davidic covenant. The promise that God made to David was spoken over David's life by this prophet Nathan. And you can read it. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 7 if you would like to. It's, it's quite significant and important in our study of the scriptures. And there's three quick aspects of the covenant that I want to draw your attention to. Number one, it begins, and it's a reaffirmation by God of the promise of the land to the Jewish people. God made that promise to Abraham. He later reiterated it to Moses and so on. And so it's a reaffirmation of the promise of the land to Israel that David is going to serve as a king over. The second pro pro promise excuse me, of the Davidic covenant is that David's kingdom would be a perpetual kingdom, that it would go on and on and on. Now, the king that was right before him was King Saul. If Saul's kingdom was perpetual, then his son would have become king, and his grandson then, and his great-grandson, and so on and so forth. But the kingdom was taken from Saul and given to another family. It was given to the family of David. And God promises here in this Davidic kingdom that that kingdom would go on forever, perpetual. That David's son would sit on the throne after him, and then his son would sit on the throne after him, and so on and so forth. So that's our first two promises. Number one, the land for the Jewish people. Number two, your family is going to sit on the line forever, the throne forever. And then the third promise, this is where the covenant really expands. And so it started as a promise to a man, David, and then to that man's family. But here is now where it really expands outward, and it looks way beyond just this time in which we live, and it looks off into really into eternity or even uh, future to where we are right now. This is what the prophet said. He said, In your house, David, and your kingdom, David, shall be made sure forever before me, and your throne shall be established forever. Now, even a great king like Solomon was going to live his life and die, and even his son would live and die, and his son, and so on and so forth. So how forever? How would this, his throne be established forever. Well, the prophet Nathan telling David, looking past time here and looking all the way into the stretches of eternity. We have this promise of an everlasting kingdom, a promise 
that from David's line would come the one that would be called the greater than David. And the Jews understood that that was a reference to the Messiah of Israel, or as he's referred to in the New Testament as the Christ of Israel. And so why was the city, why was the Savior born in the city of David? Well, where else would the son of David that would rule over Israel be born? Now it brings us to a second question that our Luke passage sparks, and that is why Christ the Lord. The angels that said to the shepherds, For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Contrary to popular usage, the word Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title. And so it, it would probably be more proper if we would say Christ the Lord as opposed to or Jesus Christ or Jesus the Christ. It would be more appropriate really for us to say that because it's a title and not a name. I, I mentioned this a few weeks back, but if you weren't with us or you've forgotten, the word Christ is an English word that comes from a Greek word and it's primarily what is used, that's what the New Testament was written, primarily in Greek. And so the word Christ come, is the English kind of transliteration of that Greek word. It's a word that means the anointed one. In the Old Testament, they used Hebrew, not Greek. The word for Hebrew uh, that means anointed one is where we get the English word Messiah. And so Messiah is synonymous, exact same thing as Christ. Old Testament, they would use Messiah. New Testament era, they would use Christ. And so to say Jesus Messiah or Jesus the Messiah is to say exactly Jesus the Christ. The anointed one is what it means. In biblical times, anointing someone with oil, that was a sign that God was setting that person apart for a particular role or task. And so an anointed one was someone that... Was, had a special God-ordained purpose that they would accomplish. And so you read through the Bible, the Old Testament, you see that prophets were anointed, you see priests were anointed, you see kings were anointed. In every instance there, as that oil was poured over the person and they were prayed for, in every instance there, it was an indication that there was a special ordained purpose of God for this person's life. So there were lots of people in the Old Testament that were anointed. But even as they were, in addition to that, the Old Testament predicted that there would come an anointed one. And so there were many that were anointed, but even as that was happening, they were looking for an anointed one, capital A, capital O. Moses calls him the prophet. This is what we see in Deuteronomy 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, and it is to him you shall listen. Reminiscent there of John the Baptist's words when he said, don't look to me, look to him. I'm not even worthy to unlatch his sandals. In Isaiah 42, God the Father refers to this anointed one as my servant. He had a task and declares that he had put his spirit upon him. That's an anointing. And so Isaiah 42, it says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. The anointed one. A little later in the book of Isaiah, he speaks of this anointed one again. 
This time, Isaiah quoting the Son speaking, capital S, O-N, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me, remember, anointed for a purpose, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to the, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. And so you can find other examples of that. There's plenty of them. But for a couple thousand years, the Jews looked for the coming of this anointed one, this deliverer, this savior. And here we are out in the field one night, as these shepherds are keeping watch over their sheep, it was revealed to those shepherds by an angel that after all of those years of the people wondering, when will God's anointed one come, that he announces, the angel announces, that he has come. And where else would the anointed one, the anointed son of David, be born but in the city of Bethlehem? Now that leads us then to our third and final question, my third and final question. And it's sparked by that statement again in Luke chapter 2, verse 11. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. My third question is why a Savior? The Jews of Jesus' day, they were looking for a Messiah. It, it actually developed into a tradition that if a little baby boy was born, they would celebrate. If a little girl was born, they ah, bummer. Not because they don't like little girls, they're very cute, but because they were in their hearts a bit, looking for the Messiah. Maybe this could be the one. They were looking for the anointed one. Now, by the time of Jesus' day, the Jewish people, they were looking for a Messiah that would save Israel, that would rescue Israel, but from the perspective of overthrowing the Roman government. The Jews were submitted to, they were occupied by the Roman government, had to do with the Caesar and the Herods and all that, wanted them to do. And so they were delighted about this uh, opportunity that a Messiah was going to come, one that was going to rule the world, one that would throw off the Romans and get rid of them, and so on. In fact, as you read the, the New Testament, the Gospels, it wasn't until after Jesus' resurrection that even his own closest disciples finally began to understand what his initial coming was all about. Speaking to Jesus right after his resurrection, one of them poses a question, now are you going to overthrow the Romans? Something that I'm paraphrasing a little. He's like, oh, Eve, uh, I don't know if he said that, but he said, you, you don't get it, he says here. They still didn't quite get it. Now we know, and we've been doing a lot of studying this year as we've been making our way through different places in the scripture, we know that there is coming a day when the Lord will deliver politically, and he will establish his kingdom, and he will rule and reign from a literal throne in righteousness. We know that that day is coming. But in Jesus' first advent, his first coming, his mission was to deliver his people spiritually. And so when this angel declares that this baby would be a savior, He's not thinking politically, he's thinking spiritually. He's speaking of a savior that will free the people from the power and the penalty of their sin. And you say, well, how do you know that? Well, we know that because earlier, another angel, maybe it's the same one, but it just says an angel. Perhaps it's the same one, perhaps it's a different one. But earlier, an angel declared 
to the man who was going to fulfill the, fill the role of father in Jesus' life, that man Joseph. This is what that angel said to Joseph. It says, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, Joseph, in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. God's anointed one had come, and he had come to fulfill the reason for which he had come, which was to save his people from their sins. There is a testimony of scripture. What I mean by that is you could work your way through the Bible and it's going to pop up again and again and again and again and again. You can put all that together. There is a testimony of scripture from the very beginning pages all the way to the final pages at the end that there is a penalty for sin and that the penalty for sin is death and separation from God. That's just something you can see as just casually reading through the Bible. If you take your time to read all of its pages, you're like, yeah, that, that's true. That's what it says. You may not believe it, but you could read it and say, yes, that is the message. That's the testimony of Scripture. You remember what God told Adam in the garden, what the consequence of disobedience would be. He said to him, on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. If you disobey what I'm asking you to do on the day that you do so, the penalty for that would be death. That's the first couple pages of our Bibles. The Apostle Paul, he explained it this way in the New Testament. He said that the wages of sin is death. That's what is earned as a result of sin. There's three things we understand about sin and salvation from the Scripture, and they are this, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of of God, his standard of holy perfection. Every one of us in here, you don't even know me, you're a human being. Every one of us in here and every one of us that are out there has fallen short of God's standard of holy perfection. That's just the reality. Let's not be honest about it. And, and I agree, that fellow over there, not you, you're a fine person, but that guy over there, yeah, he really fell short, and I just fell this much short. Yeah, okay, there are degrees in humanity, but we've all fallen short. And because we have all fallen short, all of us sit under the penalty. The wages, what you earn if you sin, the wages of sin is death. The penalty of sin is death. That's why we have death in our world, in our life. Yesterday, I, I had a chance to visit with my aunt, and she's in her final days. And as I spoke with her grandson, he said, well, you know, I said, how you doing? You okay? You know, um, and all this stuff. And he says, well, the reality is, he said, this is the order of life. And he's absolutely right. I don't know if, how much his understanding is that goes beyond that. But this, that's why there is death in our society, because sin has entered in. And the penalty of sin is death and separation from God, a broken relationship with God. So we know all have sinned. We know the penalty of sin. And then finally this, we know this from Scripture, that only God can remove sin and deliver us from that judgment. Only God can do that. So that baby that was born in the city of David is the means by which God will accomplish that deliverance. Again, think of what the angel said to Joseph. You shall call his name Jesus, 
for he will save his people from their sins. John the baptizer, he said this years later. He said, whoever believes in the Son of God has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That's the means by which God would remove sin. Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Christ, the anointed one, he would come. He would grow to be a man. He would do all that he did, accomplish all that he accomplished. He would give his life freely on a cross for others. And then three days later, he would rise from the dead as evidence of the victory over the consequences of sin. That's what Jesus would do and did. And this is what we are supposed to do. That above verse I just quoted, it tells us, whoever believes on the Son. That's our response. That's what we are to do. When the angels heard there was a baby that was born in the city of Bethlehem, He's gonna, his name is Christ the Lord, they knew they had to respond to that. Every one of us has to respond to what I'm saying here today. John said, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Why would God do that? Why would God take upon himself the penalty for our sin? Why would he suffer and die for our sin? Why would the son endure separation from our father, his father, for our sin? Well, that same chapter 3 of John tells us. This is John 3.16. It says that God so loved the world. He loved the world so much that despite what it involved, he would do it. He loved the world so much, it says, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And I love this next verse, and we don't quote it enough. It says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but he sent his son into the world in order that the world might be saved through him. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. God so loved the world that he was willing to take upon himself the judgment our sin deserved. I hope, and I've been praying too, that every one of us here understands that reality, is that God loved you so much that he didn't want to be separated from you in the temporal and for all eternity. But because sin separates and there's nothing that man can do about what they've already done, he would do it himself and he would intervene. And my prayer is that every one of us would understand that reality, respond to that reality, and receive the gift of salvation. And so, if for the first time this morning, you find yourself beginning to maybe understand the purpose of Jesus' coming, maybe a little more than you ever did before, can I remind you that you need now to respond to what it is that Jesus is prompting your heart with? Respond to the news, the good news that he came to save. Unto you has been born a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, that whoever believes on him would not perish, but will have eternal life. Spend some time in the quietness of your heart, meditating on these few things. All of us can do this. God wants to forgive you of your sin. And God wants to set you free from the consequence of your sin. And God wants to bring deliverance from the bondage of your sin.
If you haven't yet, I encourage you. Place your trust in Jesus Christ. And you do that by whispering, really, a simple prayer. You don't have to do it in front of others. You don't have to come up and say, do I have to sign something like that? Really, just in the honesty of your heart, you go before God, and you whisper a simple and honest prayer to him, acknowledging your need and that you're placing your trust in him and him alone to meet that need. And the testimony of a lot of people in this room and the testimony of the last couple thousand years or more is that when you do that in sincerity of your heart, God does a miraculous work within you. And he gives us the right to be called the children of God for everyone that believeth on him. And so may God bless each of you today. May each of you and your family and your friends honestly have just a really sweet, merry Christmas. But may you be just reminded afresh, and maybe for the first time, that there is forgiveness of sin found in Christ our Lord and Savior. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love that reality. And Lord, there was a hopelessness of our situation from a human perspective. And you did what no one could do. You came into this world. You've lived a sinless life. You offered yourself as a sacrifice for our sins. You rose again victoriously, demonstrating you've conquered the penalty of sin. You give us the ability to come to you by faith. You fill us with your Holy Spirit as a down payment of heaven. You create within us new hearts. And the righteousness of Christ becomes our own, even as the sin of us became Christ's on the cross. And so, Lord, we don't want to miss the wonder of our salvation because kind of these things are familiar to us or because maybe we get distracted with some of the celebrations of Christmas that, that aren't accurate to the text. And so help us, Lord, as we meditate on these things to really enter in to the knowledge of them that you would have for us. And I pray that prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.